Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity worlds where we're all at home quarantined. We know that the working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back again to Castaway FIS's podcast. I'm joined again this week by Tom all the way from Singapore. Uh, Kerry and Alex are joining me in our new fourth floor office. We're uh, halfway through uh, an office move. So thank you everyone to joining us again. Cool. Let's kick off at the start. We're going to be looking at some of those news stories that we've seen this week or some interesting editorials which we've come across and we want to highlight to all those uh, people in the markets. Uh, before doing our usual market updates and some points into our uh, other markets as well. So well, how about I kick off this week? Um, I've picked up a, an article which I've been reading in Foreign Affairs, which talks about the uh, unravelling of American power. So you've had a situation where the US has basically been unrivaled apart from a, a little period after the Second World War where there, it was a, a huge contest between them and, and the uh, and the communists, the Russian communists. But obviously that has fallen since uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, starts the 90s. And it's talking now about how this is going to change. So you're looking at, uh, well, this is something which has, has come about through what, what Trump has done as a, as a president of the United States and generally what's happening around the world. So you had Trump criticizing before and in his first years of office those international bodies which you know the the United States had a huge impact in in setting up that being things like NATO the UN World Health Organization which he's very much criticized the recently the World Bank the IMF yeah exactly, exactly. Almost so, all the multilateral institutions that the US indeed created um, or worked with other countries to create um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it, Chris? Exactly. So you, you're now looking at a situation where the US and what's come to terms as its uh, allies, the West, are not going to have the kind of uh, automatic hegemony over everybody uh, in the world anymore. Uh, one point is that this has been coming for quite a while. You can look at statements from, from earlier in history. In 1997, you had the Chinese president, Zhang Zemin, and uh, the Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, saying that they promised to promote a multipolarized, multipolarization of the world and establishment of a new international order. And you can see that more recently from the bodies which they've set up, things like the Chinese-run Asian in, uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, the Russian-backed Eurasian Economic Union, or the Shanghai Corporation Organization. You know, they're setting up these new bodies, and they may be criticized for being talking shops in themselves, but, I mean, you look at what happens in the, in the UN itself, it's... It's a, it's a talking shop for those things, but the US don't, or, or having this kind of competition to their, their usual order now. And, and well, one of the things is that, okay, it's, we've been moving towards a multipolar world for some time, and I think that's, that's un, not a dispute in any way whatsoever, um, and perhaps to some degree even healthy. Um, and and it's, uh, it's just something people aren't used to because they haven't seen in so long. However, there's a second question, which is some of the short-term damage done by people like Trump who simply don't believe in multilateralism and have pulled us out of, well, pulling us out of the WHO was a, was a perfect example. You know, should that be reversed by whoever gets elected uh, in three months in the United States? Can some of that damage be reversed, um, you know, within the context of moving anyway towards a more multipolar world? Is all of this permanent or 
can some of that be slowed by uh, by a re-engagement of the US with the world? I think I'm not sure it can be reversed. What's done has happened now. So I think it's going to have to take an entirely new direction and basically embrace these sort of uh, bodies in an entirely new way. It's going to need a new relationship and a new approach to things. I don't think we can reverse what's happened now. I tend to agree. I tend to agree. What will be interesting to see as well will be how the Western alliance reacts to any change in leadership in the U.S., uh, and whether that will trigger a closening of relations once again in transatlantic terms, um, uh, something that you know has been noticeably cold uh, for the last for the last three and a half years. So. Will, will the U.S. equity markets continue to be as strong as they are in in, in five to six months' time? Uh, <laughs> I highly doubt it personally, but let's see. But this does have a, an impact for a lot of things which we're talking about in terms of commodities. You can have China influencing or trying to influence itself. You can have a flashpoint, South China Sea, the US going, you should do this. And people turning around going, we don't have to listen to you as much anymore. So True. this is a story which will start and have a load of impact on, on lots of other things. And especially for those kind of commodities, currencies, the US dollar not being the automatic uh, currency of the world anymore or potential not to be. So loads of things that, that are kind of picked up on this as an initial story yeah. and things to, to think about. But let's move on to our next story. Kerry, you have an article about China and Australia from Coffin Spit, the Daily Mail. <laughs> I, I, I will admit guiltily to use it, uh, to using the Daily Mail as a source for this um, uh, Daily Mail online. Um, but uh, the article is about a speech with Tony Abbott made, the former Australian PM. Uh, who was warning about a potential loss to Australia of business as China diversifies its raw material supply chain, uh, primarily looking towards China increasing their imports of iron ore from West Africa, um, potentially at the expense of the, the massive West Australia-China trade. We know that the, the West Australia-China iron ore trade is worth something in the region of $150 billion a year at the moment uh, to the Australian economy. Um, now, it's no secret that some massive iron ore projects have been underway in West Africa. Some of those are partially Australian-owned. Rio Tinto has a, 20, a 45% stake, I believe, in the Simandu project in Guinea, um, which is really getting underway as we speak, uh, despite multiple delays. And, and, and essentially, what I thought was interesting about this was we've been discussing for several months now the trend towards China. Uh, sorry, other countries diversifying their supply chains away from China for security. But China is also, of course, doing the same thing, looking for other sources of raw materials that they need so they don't have to rely exclusively on what they perceive as a Western country um, for their for their key imports. China's influence in Africa, though, is, is substantial and has been for some years. I mean, about yeah. 10 or 11 years ago, they built themselves a brand spanking new building, the Chinese Development Bank, in the middle of Santon in Johannesburg. Um, they're well known to be influencing themselves in Mozambique, Angola, Malawi. I mean, yeah, they're, they're not even being quiet or shy about no, it, really, are they? Not at all. They they see it as as a great alternative, I think, and 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 the continent where they can probably exert the most influence outside of Asia. Um, and uh, you know, for me, it's a it's a natural strategic move by the Chinese, but it's interesting to consider for the first time how this might change global trade patterns. Uh, you know, from a Cape size market perspective, I have to say on the freight side, it would be probably a good thing since it would increase the 10 mileage demand um, uh, on, on iron ore shipments. But, uh, but it will be uh, an interesting thing to see just how much China can substitute 
Australian imports for West African or West African rather for Australian imports. Cool. Uh, Tom, why don't we come to you for your story next? Uh, you've got one on Rio Tinto's profits from Yahoo. Uh, yeah. Um, so following on from what uh, Keris is talking about uh, with regards to Rio, uh, Rio announced their half-year results today um, and beat um, market expectations by uh, not in considerable amount of about $300 million. Um, So... 80% of Rio's uh, revenues are driven by iron ore. Um, so this is really a reflection of the iron ore market and the tightness in the iron ore market this year. Um, so a very, very strong performance from Rio uh, in what has otherwise been a fairly muted earnings uh, week um, globally so far. Um, I think one of the one of the key takeaways from that report, other than what Kerry was just talking about with uh, with Rio's financing of that uh, Guinea uh, mine in West Africa, is um, the fact that um, they will still be paying a, a fairly chunky dividend. So from a from an equities perspective, from a from an investor's perspective, there are there you know dividends have taken a massive hit this year. Uh, across a lot of the commodities complex, most of the oil companies are withdrawing dividends completely or slashing dividends quite aggressively. Um, Rio have increased their dividend from a dollar fifty one to a dollar fifty five per share. So, um, if you're holding Rio, uh, it, it's turned into a into a very very good play this year uh, and looks to continue to do well. Cool. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Alex, uh, you are coming up with our last story. It's about a China-Iranian trade deal. Yeah, and it's from a website called TRT World Opinion. And what the article basically says is that the reported deal looks like it's been overstated. So the relationship between China and Iran has been in the spotlight recently and a potential 25-year deal uh, worth approximately $400 billion of China's investment into Iranian energy and transport infrastructure in return for oil supplies, um, discounted oil supplies, the article says, is, um, is, is in the pipeline, to put it. Just in case you were wondering where my puns were today. Um, so the New York Times and the Washington Post um, have reported on it and they see it as basically an example that Trump's campaign against Iran has failed. And actually far far from isolating Tehran as uh, Trump intended, the policy has just driven it straight into the arms of Beijing. Um, a version of the plan got leaked online, but it hasn't been authenticated by the Iranian government yet. And actually what's been leaked is far less impressive than some of the reports suggested. It makes no mention of the $400 billion statistics of discounted oil. It makes no mention of troop deployments or of any occupation of the Iranian islands in the Persian Gulf, which was what was originally being suggested. Um, and basically a little more of, of a roadmap, um, what's been leaked online. So probably less, less for people to worry about. Um, Chinese companies historically have struggled in Iran. Some of the projects have faced huge delays, especially in the northern oil fields, which got going six years after the contract was originally signed in 2009. Um, others have just simply stopped. The China National Petroleum Corporation was booted out of the southern oil field in 2014. And last year, it withdrew from another southern oil field in the South Pass gas field. Um, and, it, and that happened as well in 2012. So it almost feels like this, that the press are trying to make something, a mountain out of a molehill. But this potentially is on is going to happen. And it's, it's part of, I think, of their Belt and Road Initiative that we've talked about before. Um, rail freight between China and Europe has tended to go through Russia previously and not Iran. So maybe this is part, part of what's going to happen. Most, in most cases, I think the goods travel by sea. That seems to be a lot cheaper. 
Um, and it's fared, you know, the, the sort of Belt and Road Initiative has fared a lot better in the Gulf where the China-backed port at Khalifa in Abu Dhabi is basically already up and running. Um, so, what, I mean, ultimately, either way, Beijing's going to keep the door open to Iran. Um, even if little can be expected from this proposed deal, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that China usually takes a long-term view and has the capacity to do so. Yeah, yeah. very much so. But it makes sense. I mean, I think I was reading yesterday in terms of Iran, they are technically bankrupt and they've suffered hugely from US sanctions. So it does make sense that they would turn to the Chinese yeah. and the Chinese would see that as a natural ally economically and therefore politically afterwards. And, and, and again, thing. it goes back to this diversification, the diversification strategy that we were just discussing. So, you know. Or was a great example of shoot from the hip diplomacy failing. Mm. <laughs> yep. There we go. Tom, the last word. We're going to move on. Well, Tom, why don't you start us off with an overview of what's been happening in our in our main markets? What we what we've seen in terms of movements in the iron ore market? Uh, I'm starting to feel like I sound like a broken record when talking about iron ore at the moment. Um, it is another case of price not really moving on a week on week basis, but a huge amount of movement in the last few days one way and then the other so um this time last week or the close of play on wednesday uh, the august contract was trading 108 spot 20 and the q4 100 spot 35 uh currently trading around 107.65 on the orgy and uh q4 uh around 99 spot 35 but uh, it does feel like it's firming up at the moment um so i think broadly speaking we can say we're pretty much in line with where we were a week ago. Um, that said, um, we had a bit of a correction at the back end of last week, early this week. Uh, price came off probably two and a half, three percent, and then it's regained all that ground um, today and yesterday. Um, conversations with the trade are still fairly perplexed. People do generally feel that this is massively overcooked uh, and all the fundamentals are pointing one way. But the US dollar weakness that I think Chris just touched on uh, is obviously driving some of this sort of demand from a, from a macro perspective. Buying commodities price in US dollars is a lot cheaper at the moment for, for countries that um, can benefit from that. Um, but a couple of interesting sort of points that we've noticed in the week. Um, so the rebar um, steel contract on the Dalian versus the iron ore futures contract on the Dalian, the price ratio between those two contracts is at 4.5, which is a historic low, which indicates to us that rebar profit margins that are at an all-time or, or are approaching all-time low levels. The Haybay Mills um, have, have declared that their profit margin per tonne of iron ore is currently below 100 yuan, which is a historically low level. So those steel margins that we've been talking about over the course of the last few weeks that have been maybe incentivizing some of this aggressive buying are now collapsing quite quickly. The rebar price is not moving up in line with the iron ore price. So it's just the iron ore price uh, accretion is just eating into eating into the mills margins. So in a normal scenario, you would expect some sort of basic supply and demand correction uh, on the iron ore price, but we are clearly not in normal um, trading conditions at the moment. So this could go anyway. Uh, the other interesting point um, that, I've, that I've discovered this week is cement prices have corrected 40 yuan over the past three weeks. 
And this is obviously a big divergence with the steel price, which has been gradually ticking up basis. Everyone thinking that, you know, there's huge infrastructure spending coming. Um, this big Chinese recovery is going to be led by infrastructure, steel, retail and commercial property building, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there appears to be quite a big divergence in what real steel demand is. Um, if you look at other markets that would be required to sort of feel that uh, recovery. So there are a couple of interesting That's points there. Very, very interesting. Because yeah. when in the past, um, I, you know, when we have seen that cement price start to fall, that's usually one of the key leading indicators yeah. in terms of Chinese steel falling. So that's that's a fascinating point. Yeah. So, so it did feel at the start of this week there was a fairly strong correction Monday. It recovered pretty quickly, but it it has felt that on a technical level as well um, that we we you know if if iron ore tests new highs and breaks them, then this really could go up a long long way. But if it if it tests the highs and corrects back off them, you know I expect us to be in a sort of consolidation phase a holding pattern but a couple of traders that we've talked to in the week have sort of said they wouldn't be very surprised if this went ten dollars up or ten dollars down at the moment there's just very little conviction um from anyone as to where this is but would be no surprise if it was an aggressive 10 15 percent move in either direction at the moment cool thank you tom um on oil has been a, a little bit more boring uh, to put it uh, bluntly uh, we're still hovering around that kind of 43 to 44 level. Uh, we did try to test the upside. We were pumping out um, some technicals saying that the 44.75 was definitely a level to try and see what happened. Uh, we tested that and we've entered a corrective phase since since rejecting that level and stayed there since the moment. Some more interesting points to, to point out that uh, we are increasingly seeing a move back into backwardation as we see returning demand. Uh, that's been kind of led... Uh, on the high sulfur fuel oil, which are both now front three months or so, are back into backwardation. The Sing 0.5 has now moved also into that uh, into that structure. So we're seeing that these products are clearly seeing the demand increase again, and we're returning back to a usual market structure. Also, this morning the Sing Fogo was was rocketing up. We started around. We've been sitting maybe minus 50, minus 47 levels for for around about a week, maybe a bit longer, and we were pushing up to kind of 41. Uh, hearing uh, some significant buyers out there in the market uh, off the back of refiners producing more gas oil, oh, it's more gasoline, sorry, rather than rather than fuel oil. So there's kind of a switch of, of slate for the refiners of what they're doing. But on the high sulfur fuel oil side, again, that's just continuing its strength, which has been quite incredible. The Saudis for, for power production and all those people staying at home for their air conditioning uh, and others are seeing a real high demand for that high sulfur fuel oil at the moment. Kerry, finish us off for our market movements on freight. Uh, in short, the market got hammered over the past week on the physical. Uh, and uh, the 5TC average on the Capes dropped from around just under 23,000 this time last week to 16,500 yesterday. Uh, although the pace of the fall on the physical slowed noticeably yesterday with a drop of, quote unquote, only 450 bucks um, on the index. Uh, the August paper on the Capes actually found a floor yesterday, just around 16,500 before uh, quite a strong rebound uh, yesterday afternoon and this morning to trade at 18,625 at the moment. Um, interestingly, we commented last week that, you know, there was a $7,000 discount on the paper as compared to the spot index. And was that sustainable? It was not. Obviously, the, uh, the physical index moved down 
to uh, to meet the paper. Um, uh, and that convergence happened. The Panamax is also lost on the week with the 4TC index falling from 11,400 this time last week to just under 9K. Um, but again, led by the capes, that paper found a floor yesterday with the front months stabilizing and bouncing back. Uh, the August Panamax contract in the past 24 hours moved up by about 1250 bucks to, uh, to trade around 11100 at the moment. Do you, th- do you think that price correction, Kerry, on the capes is uh, the market digesting Vale's forecasts and, and actually finally deciding we don't buy it anymore? Or is it a more technical correction? I personally think it's a more technical correction. There's a lot of optimism going forward still if you talk to people uh, about uh, about Vale insisting that they're going to meet that forecast. Whether or not they believe they will actually meet it, it's very clear that Brazil has been ramping up its production um, somewhat successfully. So at the moment, you know, knock on wood, I'm, I'm hopeful that we found something of a floor here. But, uh, but uh, of course, uh, this is a volatile market, famously mm. so. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see whether this can hold. Tom, I'll move back to you and talking about supply and demand points from from the uh, iron ore. Uh, yeah, um, so the um, iron ore arrivals uh, into China um, this week are down 1.9, or best part, 1.9 million tons week on week. Um, but the expected evacuation, so uh, itinerary moving from port uh, into the mills in, in inland, um, is also expected to be down. Um, so that's sort of a continuation of what we were saying last week. Um, from a weather perspective, you know, we're going through rainy season in China at the moment. Should be sort of looking to come out the back of it relatively soon. Um, but there's been some significant flooding and rainy weather um, over the last few weeks. Um, and this has continued through last week um, and has, has sort of impacted um, the ability for finished product and raw materials to move around um, around China. Um, the interesting thing, a point as well, I think, um, that has been flagged um, over the last couple of days is that actually from an Indian perspective, um, there's been quite a lot of interest in the market for cargoes to move into India. Um, so there's been sort of rumours that domestic steel in India was starting to, to recover um, and that the market is starting to uh, look for cargoes on a coking coal and an iron ore basis uh, in India. So a slight diversification away from China. And maybe maybe if that demand is strong enough, you'll, you'll see some flow uh, moving into India uh, and picking up some of that slack that China has been uh, sort of supporting for the last few months as the rest of the world is, is going through its sort of early stages of its recovery. Cool. Thank you, Tom. Uh, in terms of the, the oil side, uh, it's worth noting the, the API have predicted a surprise draw of um, 6.829 million barrels for, for last week's data, but released this week. So you'll have to keep an eye out for what the EIA actually report at 3.30 UK time later today. Uh, the US seems to have found uh, a bottom uh, on the number of, of oil and gas rigs. We've been falling for a long, long time. 12 straight weeks, we've seen a fall in the total number of oil and gas rigs. But worth noting that that was the, the current level is down 695 rigs 
or 73% from this time last year. So a huge drop in terms of the, the US oil wow. industry and its production. But we have had a, an increase of one in terms of oil rigs, oil rigs specifically. So we may have finally found a flaw in uh, the US production. Also, on the back of Alex's story, we've seen the China that China have uh, said that they're going to be investing $1.3 in the development of the uh, South Azadegan oil field and trying to over, well, more than double its production. So we'll see how that goes. And we'll see how it's outlined some previous projects which didn't quite go to plan, but they have definitely signaled their intent uh, with Iranian production. And then in terms of demand, 0.5% uh, has followed the high sulfur fuel, as we said, in term, in moving back into backwardation. That was on the 21st of July. It flipped. Um, this has been driven by a few shipments from the West uh, into Singapore. So those kind of Singapore levels, which we've seen, they've been you know, really oversupplied with fuel that may be starting to, to switch in its situation. Overall demand for bunker fuel does still remain down, though. We've seen that from shipments, economic activity is lower, so that, of course, makes sense. Uh, and Chinese refiners are starting to increase that production of 0.5%, but we did note last week that that's offset by some of the other Asian refiners cutting back their production and concentrating on other products or on domestic supply. For the high sulfur fuel oil, that demand has st stayed really strong, as we said about the Saudi Arabian power production uh, and also the low availability of heavy crudes to produce that uh, fuel oil, the bottom of the barrel. Um, market tightness seems to be perhaps easing slightly yesterday, but it's coming back again. We're still seeing that front future crack at minus six um, at high last week moved to about minus 620 yesterday, but we're back again, minus 575, minus 580 this morning. So it's still really, really strong uh, for a product which had predicted to um, have no purpose in life come um, the end of uh, high sulfur fuel or as a compliant fuel. But there we are in terms of, of the oil points. Kerry, finish us off before we go on to some of the other markets. Yeah, I mean, on the dry freight, uh, excess tonnage continued to plague both basins on the Cape size. Uh, the Brazil-China C3 route shed another two and a half bucks last week. Uh, with the Pacific situation looking even weaker. Uh, C5, that West Aussie-China route, shed over $2 last week. Um, the Panamax has corrected uh, more so in the Atlantic, again, with that sheer volume of committed ballasters bringing down the market um, in terms of supply. In terms of the demand side of things for the freight, as we were discussing before, there is optimism still for the second half of the year, uh, with Vale reaffirming that they intend to hit their target uh, of 310 to 330 million ton exports um, last week. This has yet to really materialize into solid gains on the physical, but it does seem to be drawing a floor under the market on the capes um, and laying the groundwork for a potential rebound. Um, so watch that space. The other thing to watch uh, just in terms of sort of random factors there is the fact that the fuel oil has been creeping up over the past several months as we've been discussing many times. Um, and with that fuel oil price being a lot stronger than it was a couple of months ago um, for both the high sulfur and the low, low sulfur, um, I think you're looking at a lot more pain for the owners right now um, than they would have experienced even a couple months ago on these sharp drops on the voyage rates. Um, again, whether that causes them more rapidly to sort of withdraw tonnage or lay up tonnage, um, we shall see, but, uh, but it's an interesting factor to consider. 
Cool. Thank you, Kerry. And some of the other markets. Alex, you're going to give us a bit of a, an update on some of the news in the tanker market. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the first one we'll touch on here is a potential flooding in China, right? actual flooding that it's experiencing, which is some of its worst floods in 100 years with record rainfalls, uh, record rainfall levels since June. And areas around the Yangtze Riverbanks are at risk of severe flooding, which is putting uh, potentially a lot of pressure on the Three Gorges Dam. Um, now, that's the structural integrity there has been questioned in the previous few weeks. And obviously, now, that's potentially a huge disaster, so one to keep an eye on, and hopefully nothing happens there. Um, and it's estimated that China has already suffered a $9 billion loss uh, in terms of economic losses this year, meaning domestic growth is very, very low. And so, let's face it, demand for crude products is taking a big hit, probably around 5%. Um, so we're seeing refineries are now trying to export all their clean products, with CPP exports reaching a high of 6.25 million barrels this week. Um, you know, we think that the increase in exports could bring a small boost to the already strengthening clean tanker market. Uh, and touching on last week's TC2 segment, TC2 has continued to rise with values now around 112 spot five on the world scale. Um, the past couple of weeks have helped to bring confidence back to the curve moving forward, far more clean trade starting to come through. Outlook for the clean market seems to be solid for the near future. Um, and as long as prompt time stays tight, at least the number of clean cargoes should continue to grow. Um, and I think also another one that's worth pointing out in the tanker space is the choke point tension tension rise. So obviously, as we keep mentioning, there are quite a lot of issues focused around China at the moment. And the US Navy has placed their Nimitz carrier strike group into the Malacca Straits. Um, very narrow body, body between Malaysia and Indonesia. I'm sure all of our listeners are probably well aware of that, but I thought I'd point it out for pub quiz purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, the move marks a power play in the region with the US flexing their guns, literally, and showing their close ties to the Indian military as well. And there wasn't enough problems in the, in the area. This, this should surely stoke a few more. Um, a combination of issues uh, in two of the most dangerous choke points creates a dangerous game for all vessels originating from Meg, travelling through the Strait of Hormuz, and then passing through the Malacca Strait. So routes including the TC-5, 12, TD-3C and TD-8 are all vulnerable if tensions do rise. Um, I think the shipping world will be keeping a very close eye on any movements within the region and hopefully avoid an escalation much like the incident in June 19 where two VLCC vessels got attacked, causing VLCC rates to jump 101% in the following days. Exactly. We saw that previous uh, incident was very quick reaction on, yeah. on the futures market. You know, something that we look at here in terms of FIS. You know, if, if any sort of situation is going to be arising and it's kind of hard to see that it's not, uh, tankers is the market that's going to tell you what's going to be happening. In, <laughs> yeah, so true. watching that's that, so you won't yeah. even need to know what's happening in the news. You'll be able to tell straight from the tanker market. So uh, thank you very much for that update on the tankers. No in terms of FERTs, we, uh, we're also seeing a, a nice move up. Uh, India are back tendering uh, for Urea straight after closing a previous round, which had been quite disappointing. Uh, but they're back again. Uh, we're seeing paper and physical Urea markets continuing their rally off the back of this uh, India business and uh, clear intent to secure uh, tonnage. We're also hearing uh, on news on Friday, Friday gone, uh, the emerge that Chinese may be participating in an upcoming tender, which is obviously adding to that that sentiment. Nolo Urea traded uh, above $230 across the curve. AG Urea was bid into the high 250s. 262 traded for September in Egypt and September Brazil got as high as $270. So we're really seeing that uh, demand come in and prices starting to fly. In terms of NOLA DAP futures, continue to trade for August, September, October, with values firming up to the low $320 uh, from last week. 
So if we, we're starting to head into uh, the harvest for corn, it looks like we're going to see some really good yields, uh, which should lend favour to uh, a full application of the DAP. But in terms of the, the international market, it's been very well supported on the, on the fiscal side, which is uh, really pushed up on those futures. So to finish off for other markets, Kerry's going to give us some air freight. Yeah, I mean, the air freight market, interestingly, is now picking up with the Asia Pacific market in particular, picking up in the past two weeks, China to USA up 17%, China to Europe up nearly 7%. Uh, This is the result of an inflection point between the cargo demand, the downstream demand from the destination countries and passenger load factor and freighter capacity uh, shifting. Uh, what's interesting is for Q4, the market is becoming increasingly bullish now. This is mainly on the back of tech product launches. So you've got Apple, Sony, Samsung, all announcing new products. Uh, and historically, these launches do have a substantial impact on available capacity. So that's something to watch. Or maybe just loads of people buying stuff for Christmas to make themselves feel better after what's been a disastrous 2020. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All those PS5s. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, um, thank you very much, everyone, for those kind of market updates. And I think it's worth noting some links to our previous episodes or news stories. So two weeks ago, we were talking about cable rate, and that's the difference between the Great British Pound and the US dollar. Uh, Two weeks ago on our podcast, that was trading about one spot 26. And we're now pushing up to one spot 29, which has been uh, its high since the 11th of March. So we're seeing a comeback. We had a news story, I think it was Alex's, about the pound being a emerging currency, but seems that they may have heard your news story and they've definitely put some, some money back behind the, <laughs> the the pounds and we're seeing a resurgence there yeah, again. Bank so, of England no doubt paid attention. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. Alex moving markets uh, is... You could get, add that into your uh, job description. LinkedIn profile. LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and also, we were talking about uh, the impact on tankers for escalation in, in choke points. We talked about US uh, losing its hegemony over the world, China trying to assert itself, trying to find allies, its Belt and Road Initiative, all this plays in. And you don't need to see any of those news stories at all. All you needed to do was watch gold price, which now has hit an all-time high of $1,981.27. So everyone's buying in gold because they definitely predict that something's going to kick off a safe haven product commodity. Without a doubt. Or cool. well, perhaps we've seen the US dollar become an emerging market. Watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Goldman's cool. had an article. Goldman's uh, announced today that, you know, on that, uh, <laughs> you joke, that they no longer believe that it should be an automatic consideration that the US is the currency of choice for basically global pricing of everything. So they, they are saying it's not a high risk, but they are flagging it on their risk radar. There we go. Watch that space. So uh, as you get to the end of the tube line, all change, please. All change. <laughs> so we're seeing everything in these markets. Uh, but any last points before we finish up for this week? That's it from my side, Chris. All from me. All from me, Chris. Cool. Thank you very much. Cool. Um, So thank you for joining us on this Wednesday, the 29th of July. And do join us again next week. Thank you all. Brilliant. Brilliant.